if a huge alien invasion were to happen today and they were to enslave the human race, that is terrifying because I have no control over it. That's the root of that terror there. It's not that it's scary that they're here. It's that I have no control. And so what are my choices when that happens? How do I respond to that in a way that can keep my sanity intact? Hello, and welcome to the Stay Free Forever podcast, episode number eight. My name is Clifford Fuel, host of the podcast that aims to help you adapt and thrive. My goal for the podcast is to talk, one at a time, with a wide variety of people who have committed offenses of all kinds and who, by finding the right tools and support, have managed to change their ways. In some ways, today's episode is similar to previous ones in that the topic of addiction will loom large. However, as if anyone needs to be reminded, addiction is not limited to drugs and alcohol. And today's conversation is going to move into areas that may make some listeners uncomfortable, but I encourage you to stay with it. My guest today is Austin Peebler, a 39-year-old man who was reared with his younger sister in Green River, Wyoming. Their mom worked in the admin offices of a medical center, and dad was a miner of trona ore, a prevalent Wyoming mineral valued worldwide for its soda ash. Austin prided himself on being a good student and a good big brother. He describes a fairly ideal boyhood of camping, mountain biking, and family vacations. Yet, as we will talk about, ideal is best judged by the one whose life we are discussing. When Austin was assigned to my most recent cognitive awareness Zoom class, his probation officer asked that, rather than the regular workbook, Austin be assigned a workbook that focused on pornography addiction. When I asked Austin about this, I was impressed by his openness and candor. He's also thoughtful and articulate, which led another student in the class to remark, dude, you could teach this class. And with that, welcome to the Stay Free Forever podcast, Austin Peebler. Thank you for having me. In your growing up in Wyoming, what did you like best? You know, I love the the ability to get outside. Usually during the summer, winter really wasn't a time when I was comfortable going out, but in the summer and and in the fall, especially, you know, my dad archery hunted and he would take the whole month of September off and go archery hunting. And it just really gave me a a good respect for nature and gave me a good respect for the environment. You know, I was fortunate enough to be able to take a vacation with my family once a year. And and it was just really positive experiences being able to do those things. Car vacations, flying? We didn't fly a whole lot. I think there were a couple of times where we flew like to Disneyland, but they were usually either road trips that we would take around the West or we would hook up the camper and, and go on some extended camping trip. We went to Canada once just a lot of traveling, a lot of sightseeing all over the West, mostly. Sounds great. Sounds really great. And other part of your bio that you fessed up to was um, you had a love and appreciation for Laura Ingalls Wilder, who wrote Little House on the Prairie, and also the works of Homer. Talk about that a little bit. (laughs) Something about the Laura Ingalls Wilder stories just spoke to the idea of like, 
that wanderlust, because I think that I had that from an early age. I had that desire to just get out and see the world and experience all sorts of things and have adventures. And she had some adventures that there was that sense of, of real human connection and danger that was happening. And I think that I identified with that. You know, and it was it was to the point where I think I was in first or second grade where there were many times during the day where I would read from those stories to the class. You know, the teacher would be able to take a break and sit back and do whatever the teacher was doing, you know, planning or whatever, and gave me the opportunity to just engage with my peers in that way. I got a little bit older and and discovered the Odyssey. I think I watched a, it on television, it, a terrible version of it, you know, a, a miniseries that was done and I just found this connection to that story, you know, and it took almost Laura Ingalls Wilder and really took it into the fantastic realm, you know, and the idea of we're still human amid all the craziness that's going on around us. I love in that story when he has all of those setbacks in his journey home, he's just trying to get home to the people that he loves and it's setback after setback, but he has that determination to continue moving forward. And even even in those setbacks, he finds it within himself to get back on track and remember what's important to him and what he's been working towards for a long, long, long time through the Trojan War and through the entire, you know, getting hung up with Circe, getting hung up with Calypso. He still has in his heart that one thing that defines him, and that's his relationship with his wife and his child. Wow. What are some setbacks that you experienced in your childhood? I think at an early age, kind of coming to the understanding that I was a little different from the other kids. And as I grew older, I started to realize what that difference was. And that was my sexuality. There's always just something that was different. And I think that that held me back from making some deeper connections as a younger child with my peers. And I had a couple of friends, but I never really connected with my peers because I always just felt like there was something that was different that was keeping me apart from them. Something in my personality as well, and I'm not sure what it was, but you know, I remember being in kindergarten and asking the teacher, can we ask everyone to quiet down? It's really obnoxious how noisy everyone is. And then as I grew a little bit, a major setback as well was probably you know, the molestation that happened. I think that that was probably, it was, it was, it was a major setback. Somewhere along the way, just like Odysseus, I think that I, I had an idea of what I wanted and what I was looking for, but it was just the outside influences, you know, kind of derailed me a little bit, so. The molestation happened when you were nine? Yes. Through age? 16. And that, you told me earlier, along with something that your folks did that was purportedly to protect, but ultimately did not have that effect, was how strict they were with the computer. Can you talk about that a little bit? I had the best of intentions. You know, my parents, I, I didn't grow up in a home where it was like um, angry, strict. It was just very regulated, you know, and I think that that was steeped in fear. They, they were terrified of what they saw in the world around them, they're trying to protect my sister and I, you know, but I think that it may have existed in a, a way that wasn't balanced with conversation, like healthy conversation. We had the computer in an area of the home where it was completely visible uh, at all times. And uh, my sister and I weren't allowed to use it unless my parents were present. You know, it was like password locked and it, it was very regulated. 
I mean, even in that day, you know, dial up internet or whatever was, was the thing, but it still was something that it wasn't a free for all. And I didn't have access to those things at all times in the home. I think that the more that I've thought and reflected on my youth and kind of the decisions that I made based around the circumstances around me, I think that that idea of too much of that oversight that was happening and not enough of the conversations of, hey, this is why, and here are, here are the things to look out for, and this is how to have a healthy relationship. And, you know, like when I told my parents that I was gay, it wasn't a, a rejection from them. You know, they, they loved me unconditionally no matter what, but I don't think that they knew how to have a healthy conversation about positive sex with me. Uh, and so that just didn't happen, you know? And so I, I was just kind of left with my peers and with whatever I came up with for myself and the experience that I had with the man who molested me. And that just kind of like shaped my sexual experience throughout my life. What could they have said or done differently with regard to just what you were talking about? I'm not a parent, right? I'm not a parent. So I, I could not even speak to how difficult that is to have to face those sorts of, of realities. But I think that, you know, from people that I know whose, whose parents had conversations with them that were based around finding self-love and self-acceptance, ideas that sex does not define a relationship it's a healthy part of a relationship having conversations that were steeped less in fear and more in like self-empowerment you know self-love uh, probably would have been helpful because it did it just felt like there was so much of don't do it it's wrong it's bad it's evil you'll get all these diseases everything will be terrible you know, kind of like a, a counterbalance to what like the D.A.R.E. program was. You know, there was a lot of no, 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 but not a lot of empowerment of the individual. I can understand parents being completely ill-equipped to talk about gay lifestyle choices to a child. A, a set of parents in this day and age might find someone to help them with that. Does that seem like a good idea? I mean, I think it would probably be a good idea. You know, my my experience was in the, the late 90s, you know, it's still, and it was in a rural area. So obviously those conversations were just starting to kind of become more mainstream. You know, you had Ellen DeGeneres who had come out, Rosie O'Donnell, um, and then you had TV shows that were, you know, a little more tempered, um, like Will and Grace was on television. And all of a sudden we were seeing people from the lesbian and gay community and the queer community kind of normalized a little bit more. That's kind of where it started a little bit, you know, that that whole fear of AIDS from the 80s had ended. And all of a sudden you have this culture shift in the 90s where it's a little more humanized than what it was before. And so I think that they did the best that they could. And I think that today, if, if that were the case, parents have a lot more resources at their disposal to kind of handle that sort of a thing. But yeah, I think that reaching out when unsure, that's that's never something wrong to admit, I don't have the answers, but let me get to the person who does. Do you remember the killing of Matthew Shepard? I do, very vividly. I was in eighth grade when that happened, and I had just recently come out to all of my peers. And that was a tumultuous time, because Columbine had just happened, Matthew Shepard happened, and, and as a, an eighth grader who was, you know, finally at kind of like that age where 
my hormones were were kicked in as strong as they were and and it just it was absolutely terrifying to me you know and and to have it that close to home it it, it gave me pause i had some friends who said that i would drew a little bit from them and i didn't know what that was about then but i do think it was about fear like can i trust people am i going to be able to trust people or am i going to end up strung up somewhere on a fence post to die it must have taken a lot of courage for you to come out to your friends in small town wyoming yeah you know, people say that they do and 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 maybe it did maybe it took a lot of courage but for me i just didn't see any other alternative it's who i was you know and it it became it came to a point where it was less comfortable to continue to hide it to continue to be at home at night and cry because i i was so afraid of people rejecting me just reached this point where it, it i had to let it out because to keep it in it was just another thing that i was keeping inside that i couldn't anymore and i i i was miserable keeping that inside and it just my peers received it very positively it was it was um oh well i i guess that makes a lot of sense you know you make a little bit more sense to us now it was also at a time where i was establishing relationships with my peers that i didn't have when i was younger you know where i i think i was maturing a little bit and i was like um coming out of my shell a little bit and, and a little more comfortable with who i was and so it, it became easier it was really the parents of my my friends and of, of my peer group who were the problem what's an example of some of the parental reaction that you had to deal with oh my goodness it wasn't me so much right but my parents they're the ones who fielded a lot of backlash you know my mom would get calls at work saying what a terrible woman she was how could she how could she allow this to happen my dad working where he worked you know it's a bunch of blue collar men but in their protective way right the counterbalance the other way that they were protective i didn't see a lot of that i didn't find out about a lot of it until i was much older and they did that was another way they protected me was by shielding me from a majority of that during this long kind of fraught period you had to deal with a, a someone from outside your family who was molesting you how did that evolve you know in the beginning it was just um the thrill you know i had i had met him at a park and uh, he had a place nearby and i would just find any moment that i could was constantly looking for ways to be free right Re like like free time where my parents because they both worked full time so during the summers and then during the school year when i was a little older he would come and pick me up during lunch periods and stuff like that it was never something that was at the time was sinister to me i thought that in my mind that this was a loving caring relationship this was an individual who was helping me in this very difficult time in my life when i was like figuring things you know when i was like coming into the idea and accepting that i was gay um because like i said it's been a, it, 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 i've been gay my whole life it's not like he turned me or anything like that it's it's just the reality of it but as i got a little older it started to get strange to me you know as i matured um with my emotions and with my my ability to perceive the world around me Uh, it became uncomfortable you know and i started to see ways in which there was manipulation that was involved and i i didn't like it as much anymore and i met someone who was my age you know i met a guy who was my age and i i i decided to to stop 
uh, to end it because I wanted to start experiencing things with guys who were my age, you know? And how was that received by this man? Um, he wasn't thrilled about it, you know, and I think that it, there was also a, a circumstance where I was in a store with my parents and, and he approached me in the store, you know, and my parents were a little confused, like, who is this strange man? And I had to like, just tell him it was a friend of a friend's dad, you know, uh, because I was so terrified that if someone found out that I would get into trouble, you know, I was absolutely terrified. And I was terrified that if someone found out that he would get in trouble, you know, at the time, like that was a fear that I had because I had affection for this person and uh, it terrified. Me. But I think at the end, it just, it became a situation where I wanted something different. I was never going to, to have I say now a healthy relationship, but whatever that version of, you know, 16 year old me was with this person. And so I, I stopped, I stopped. And there were never any repercussions. Your folks never met this person that, that sort of just drifted into the sands of time. They've met him, you know, they're aware of, of him just because it's a small town. Are they aware that he had been molesting you still? No. Okay. From 16 on, there's a lot of ways your life could have gone. How did it go? I completed school and I had this drive to leave Wyoming, you know, my whole life. I, I kind of realized that I wanted to see what else was out there in the world. And I definitely had a very rose-colored glasses view of what the world was going to be, yeah. right? Because I, I grew up in a very confined environment. So television and movies were my idea of what the world was. Or when we would leave and, and being in Los Angeles for a couple of days, you get like the tourist vision of what things look like, um, not the reality of what, what human existence is. And so I just had this drive to leave. And, uh, you know, I started using when I was in high school, but it wasn't like consistent. Um, I used a few times. But as soon as I graduated high school, that's when it really picked up for me. What were you um, using? At the time, it was just alcohol that I started. Uh, that's that's where I started was just drinking, but it quickly, you know, I was I I was free. That's what I felt like because I was finally free without having any consequences. Is what I thought I'd had I'd had the 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 looming monster of consequence over me for so long that I finally was like, well, I'm an adult. I can do whatever I want now, and so I just went for it. By the time I was 21, I had tried a wide variety of substances a wide variety of substances. And I enjoyed most of them, you know, and uh, promiscuity, very promiscuous, you know, very, very promiscuous, uh, engaged in a lot of multiple partners, sometimes multiple partners at the same time. It was very unhealthy sexual behaviors because it was just like, I, I finally felt this freedom and I wanted to experience all these different things. And I moved around quite a bit. You know, I ended up living in Salt Lake City, Colorado, Southern Florida, Hawaii, and Southern California as well. The whole time just using and, and having sex with com complete strangers, multiple strangers. There was once where when I was uh, incarcerated, the doctor had asked me, how many sexual partners have you had? And, and I honestly have no idea. I don't think you could put a number on that. And that's the life that I lived. For a long time, you know, all while in the beginning, still holding down a career, 
having a profession, you know, and, and building my way up in that. And that gave me the idea that I was the, the misconception that there is such thing as a functioning addict, that that was a thing. And, and I didn't understand that it was a progressive situation. You know, I thought that in the moment, oh, I can still go to work. I can still use all night long and go to work, continue to use some substances while I'm at work to get me through the day. So I'm functioning. Everything's okay. I'm paying my bills, right? Aren't I? I don't have any money left over, but at least I, I, I'm taking care of those bare necessities. What was your career? It was a lot of customer service. You know, I had had a few office jobs, um, but it was customer service and like big box retail, you know, and I went from like temporary temp level and I moved my way up into management. And I think that that schedule really lended to using. And I, I manipulated my schedule so that I could work at night, right? So that I could close because that really allowed me to use work in the afternoon and then get off and use and use and sleep in and then come in to work later in the afternoon. That's just kind of the cycle. Functioning career guy and user addict. Somehow this is leading towards prison. You know, in uh, 2016, I experienced a lot of loss the the like year or two before that leading up to 2016. And I was ill-equipped for that loss. I didn't really know how to deal with that emotionally. And so I continued to turn to drugs and they got worse and the drugs that I was using got worse. Then in 2016, my dog died and uh, I did not handle that well. And at the end of that year, I had a suicide attempt, you know, because I was using very heavily at that point. I'd lost so much weight. I was so depressed and just helpless, you know, that I, I had a suicide attempt. When I woke up in the hospital, I was more angry than I've ever been in my entire life. And I thought to myself, well, if you people are going to make me stay here, then I'm going to become the worst version of myself possible. I went back and stayed with my parents for a, a couple of months. And um, during that time, I started realizing that all of that sex that I was having could be used to my benefit for like free drugs and money. Uh, why am I paying for drugs when I could use my body uh, to get them instead? And so I started on that road. I met an individual and he was really interested in the idea that I was molested. You know, he was really pretty turned on by that. And so I went to his house and, uh, we were, you know, role playing or whatever we were doing. And he said, you know what, I'll give you a bunch of money and a bunch of drugs. If you'll find me some videos of child pornography that I could watch. I was trying to move to Los Angeles um, and I wanted to get to Los Angeles. And here was that opportunity to get to Los Angeles, you know, and I was so deep in my addiction that I didn't care. I didn't care that this that these videos were terrible. I didn't care. All that I wanted were drugs. I wanted something to feed my drug addiction. And this was a solution to that. I didn't care that there were people being victimized on the videos. I didn't care that, that there were people on the other end of that. All I wanted was that self-obsession to use. I wanted more drugs and I wanted the money and the opportunity to get the hell out of Wyoming and go to Los Angeles. And I took it. I took it. I got those videos for him. And uh, that's where I got the transportation of child pornography charge. Now, I wasn't arrested for like a, a year and a half later. I had no idea that there was a warrant out for my arrest. 
what ended up happening was I moved to Los Angeles and ruined the relationship that I had there and became homeless. Ended up living in a tent and prostituting myself for drugs. And it, the money went away, right? Like it no longer became about who I could get money for this. It, it became, I need to use. And this is the commodity that I have to feed that addiction. And so that's what I did. I found myself in horrifying situations. I would sell my, my EBT food stamps so that I could get drugs and then go into stores and shoplift food so I could feed myself. Horrible situation, just complete degradation. And I found myself in Palm Springs. I showed up to someone's house and decided that I was a little uncomfortable. There wasn't, there was something just, just something extra that wasn't, that didn't feel right. And I was really conflicted about that because he had a lot of drugs that I wanted to use. But I said, you know, I'm going to take off. And as I was leaving, he hit me upside the back of the head. And I still have a, a scar on the back of my head from that. And, you know, he raped me. And he said some really incredibly terrible things to me while he was doing that. And all I could think the whole time was, how am I going to get high? How am I going to get more drugs? You know, I left his house and I was bleeding and just in a daze. But all I was thinking was, but I didn't get any drugs. And now what am I going to do? How am I going to get some drugs? You know, and shortly after that, I was arrested. And what I can tell you is that that was what saved my life. Being arrested and incarcerated saved my life because I would not have stopped using on my own. I would be dead somewhere. I was at a store and I was shoplifting food and they said, we're calling the police. And I said, go ahead and call the cops. It's like, what, $12 for the food, whatever. What are they going to do? Call the police. Maybe they'll give me some water. Maybe they'll take me somewhere they can feed me. You know, the warrant was there. And so that's when they arrested me and then extradited me back to Wyoming. So have you just effectively described the bottom of your drug use? It was, it would be, that would be the bottom that I reached. Yeah. But what I can tell you is that the bottom is deeper than where I was at. If it were not for being arrested, the path that I was on, that I had no, that I, I had a desire to leave, but I didn't know how to because I was so caught up in the grip of my addiction. I do not believe that I had the capability of stopping that on my own. So you had a God-given arrest and extradited yes. back to Wyoming. How did that play out? It took like two months to get me back here. And this was my first time being incarcerated. And this was all new to me. It was terrifying because I didn't know what the expectations were. I didn't know what the culture was. I didn't know. I didn't know, you know, and I had a lot of like COs who, you know, they see this every day. And so someone who doesn't know what the rules are, right? Like I would, I would unintentionally break a rule and it was terrifying to me. Once I got to Wyoming and kind of was able to sit down with my attorney and kind of like wrap my mind about around what was going on. It was incredibly helpful for me. When I was arrested, there were some agents, some FBI agents in Southern California who interviewed me and they just asked me some questions and I was just completely honest with them. Like, yes, this happened. Yes, that is what happened. Yes, that's that occurred. You know, I just didn't see the point in lying, compounding my punishment. So I went through the process and gratefully I was able to meet with the FBI and, and they had some discussions with them about what happened and my own molestation. And I was able to meet with a forensic psychiatrist for about a week to go over like my entire history and just to, to come before the judge and say, listen, 
here's an individual who admits what he's done. He, he takes responsibility for his actions. However, there are some things that need to be taken into consideration here. And the judge was incredibly gracious and not just gracious, but realistic, I think is a better word. Sentenced me to 36 months in federal facility and asked that I complete RDAP, which is a residential drug program. And off I went. And so I served my time in Federal Island, Los Angeles, so out in the harbor. And COVID happened while I was down. So it pushed my release date a little bit, which is while during all of that confusion was happening. And I was released to the halfway house here in Casper in October of 2020. So don't you see some irony in that you ended up being on an island in the harbor with the glittering lights of LA? How did that sit with you? We could see downtown Long Beach from where we were at, you know, because we were out on the water and they called it club fed. You know, it's really very, very, very low, low, low security prison. But I was very grateful that I was given the opportunity to spend my incarceration there because it was less depressing. And I really, I really do see the irony and I see the idea that it just was full circle, right? Like where I was doing all of that crime and all that criminal behavior and and then all of a sudden, here I am serving time there. You're still on probation. How has probation treated you? Or how have you treated probation? I think that's the better question. You know, I, in the beginning, was incredibly respectful of my probation. And I think I got egotistical, right? Like, I've got this. I'm doing so well. Look at me. I'm passing all my UAs. I'm not using. I'm doing so well. And my father passed away. He got COVID and he died last January, January of 2022. And I was ill-equipped for that. As like many other deaths in my life, I was ill-equipped, did not handle it well. And I let my ego get in the way. And all of a sudden I started violating probation. You know, I was uh, going online onto like Pornhub and, and other websites like that and watching porn because I was uncomfortable and I didn't know what to do. And my old solution was sexual in nature you know, watching porn and, and, and hooking up with men. And so that's what I started doing because I, I was so uncomfortable and I didn't feel like I could talk about it with anybody. Even though I was in recovery, even though I had a sponsor and I had people in my life, these relationships that were, were healthy relationships, I, I retreated back into that idea that the solution lies in those behaviors. And I almost relapsed. I was a part of a convention in Colorado. I had plans to relapse at that convention with another addict. Luckily, that addict didn't show up. Big surprise, an addict not showing up when they're <laughs> supposed to, right? But, uh, you know, luckily they didn't show up. But immediately after that, I had my polygraph and I failed it. You know, I failed that polygraph and I was shaking. And I remember sitting down with my probation officer and he being like, what's going on? You know, and I was just shaking. And I was terrified, but the relief that I felt when I was able to just come clean about it, you know, just be honest about what was what I had been doing. And it felt so good to just tell somebody, you know, to just talk about it and, and be honest about what was happening and the feelings that I was having. I don't know that I necessarily got honest about my feelings with him that day, but it opened the door for me to be able to do so. So I was sanctioned and I spent 45 days in county jail. 
That's what the judge ordered for me with 45 days in county jail and that I needed to start engaging in sex offender therapy because I didn't before. And I had manipulated it because I said, oh, I don't need that. I'm not one of those. I'm not one of those people. I didn't molest somebody. I'm not a sex offender. And I didn't, I didn't, I was uncomfortable with the idea that I would be categorized and grouped with those people. What it did was it kept me from finding solutions and healthy ways to deal with my sex addiction. That's what it kept me from. I got in my own way. And uh, so after I got out on, on the sanction earlier this year, I committed to it and I made a lot of changes. In I changed my work schedule. I changed my sponsor. I started doing the sex offender therapy. I started establishing a routine in my life every single day. When I wake up, when I go to bed, when I meditate, when I have my spiritual practices, I just changed everything. I got honest with all of my friends and said, listen, these are the things that are struggles for me. These are things that are dangerous for me. And I need you to help hold me accountable. And I need for you to support those things. And in doing so, it shifted my entire perception of my life. And it shifted, it shifted everything. It changed everything. You know, it gave me that ability, like you talk about, to stay free, to find that freedom. But I had to come to my knees again. And then I had to get honest about what was going on with the people who were around me and stop piling all of my feelings and my emotions inside and just bring those to the light and say, I need some help. You know, I need some help. Somebody please help me and turn to people who had the capability of doing that. Austin, if I'm your friend, how can I help? What can I do specifically to be a support and not a drawback? Being supportive and honest emotionally is incredibly important respecting boundaries is also incredibly important. You know, I think that we live in a day-to-day -day where socially acceptable behaviors around sex are pretty prevalent, right? And so just respecting those boundaries um, with someone who maybe should not be sent that meme, you know, that's sexually suggestive or, or maybe uh, not sending that funny joke that's uh, absolutely inappropriate. That might be a good idea. You know, just to talk to the person about what, what is healthy for you, what is triggering for you, what aspects make you feel uncomfortable and want to go back to those behaviors again. And instead of it being something that it's shameful, that it's something that just understanding it's another addiction. And it's not something that needs to be turned away from, but it's something that can be addressed in a healthy way, just like addiction to drugs and alcohol. It can be addressed in a healthy way. What are the healthiest things that you're doing today? I think for me, like I talked about, having a routine and, and being accountable. Um, I think that my, my therapy, my therapist has been instrumental in me finding relief and freedom for myself. I think that I, I carried a lot of shame and guilt, and, and justly so, but I continue to carry those things and, and allow them to hold me back because I viewed myself as a terrible, horrible human being who deserves nothing more than terrible, horrible things. That, that became my identity. Um, but my therapist has really helped me with the idea that, you know, I committed a sex offense, but I'm not a habitual sex offender. And so I need to let go of that idea that I don't deserve love and I don't deserve compassion and I don't deserve good things in my life and that I can't achieve things. And she's really helping me with that. So I think for me today, 
continuing to maintain my recovery in my 12-step program, continuing to see a therapist, continuing to be honest with my, my probation officer about if I'm struggling with something or if I'm comfortable about something. It's incredibly important because those people are, exist to help reintegrate back into society. You know, and I understand that they've got a job to do to make sure that as I reintegrate, that I'm not a threat to myself or to the society that's around me. It's incredibly important to partner with those people. And when I decide that I want to hold things back or be dishonest, that's at my own detriment. In my experience in prison, I saw the absolute lowest level of society was the habitual sex offenders. All the other mm -hmm. inmates were able to point at them and say, at least I'm not like them. But from what I hear you saying that even those people who are habitual sex offenders, there is a route out for them too, but it starts with what? Behavior and choices. I mean, it's, it's, it's as simple as that. It really is. There's, there's a tendency to overcomplicate what's going on, to blame, to say it was such and such as fault or the establishment's fault or the judge's fault or whatever. But for me, when I started to take responsibility for my actions, that's when I was able to change. When I was able to say, you know what, I've done this, but I have a choice. and I don't have to continue to behave this way. I don't have to do it. That's a choice that I make consciously to continue to perpetuate that cycle. And when I make the choice to make some changes, and to also understand that change takes time. It's not an overnight situation, right? Like healing and, and learning new habits and learning new ways to live. It's not something that's going to happen in the course of a couple of months. Like this is something where it has to become with intention and purpose on my part over a long period of time. What I've come to find through my recovery program is I've seen areas in my life where that has occurred where I've gained some freedom, where I've gained the ability to find serenity and happiness, find gratitude. I don't go to bed anymore and I don't wake up anymore thinking like, oh, this life again, you know, or, oh, it's so depressed. I wake up today with gratitude and I go to bed with gratitude because I make a decision to find areas in my life that I can change for the better. I don't know how we can top that first part. I really appreciate your um, your careful thought and uh, expository nature on all that. There's a lot of people who now who are, I believe, have a few more keys. The second part of the podcast has to do with me reading some answers that a student gave on an earlier course. And I found a, a doozy. So with your help, we, we identified a couple of things that we could talk about from this 28-year-old Colorado man who was assigned the online cognitive awareness course after he had burglarized a business and broken into and slept in someone's apartment during a manic period he had experienced the prior summer. A couple of questions that were posed to him are as follows. Why do you think drug abuse rates are higher among those from dysfunctional homes? And he wrote, because dysfunctional homes are full of traumatized people. Drug abuse temporarily numbs one's emotional pain so trauma can be suppressed, but it's not a long-term solution, so it easily becomes habitual. So I think that in my experience, you know, I don't, I, I don't believe that I came from a dysfunctional home. 
But because of my experiences in recovery, many, many, many addicts come from dysfunction, right? And 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 we can we can say dysfunction all along. And I think that that's a very subjective word to use because I can look at a home that maybe is a little disorganized and to me that's dysfunctional, but it's still filled with love and compassion and and and, and human growth. But what I do think that is is I found is that when an individual is raised in an environment where the humanity is absent. I think that that's really kind of more of the question here. Is a person who's raised in an environment where basic needs are not met, they're not taught things like compassion for other people and empathy or uh, what a healthy relationship, they don't have like a benchmark on what a healthy relationship is. Of course, they can turn to drugs as a solution because it's an easy way out, right? It's got to be something that's very conflicting. Just like I had conflicting emotions when I grew up, I see the individuals come from homes that are dysfunctional and turn to drugs because they want to feel different. They want an escape. And that is such an easy solution because they see it around them. So I also have found that when I was incarcerated, I had a hard time identifying with a lot of the men that I was incarcerated with because they came from backgrounds that were completely different than mine. And they, in their mind and in their truest beliefs, thought that that was all there was for them. It was heartbreaking. The number of men who would say, well, I don't deserve anything best. This is all I've ever known. I can't be anything more than a gangbang individual. I can't do anything other than be in prison because it's all I've ever known. It's all I've ever seen. And that was incredibly heartbreaking to me to know that there are so many individuals out there who are in parts of our society that truly believe that this is the best that they will ever see. That question got me thinking a little bit today. I'm going to go ahead and read a second question from this gentleman. What is your plan to protect your subconscious mind from negative programming? And he writes, I will protect it by associating with healthy people and meeting obligations with the belief that I deserve fulfillment in life. I also need to uproot the unhealthy beliefs that are still very much in my subconscious mind. This is where the power of transmutation becomes essential. Bad programming is just energy that is not used correctly. I have to cultivate the belief that my bad behavior is only a small misunderstanding that can be corrected with a subtle shift in perception. The perspective is definitely unique. And I think that it's overcomplicated. Being a drug addict myself, I am all too familiar with how much we overcomplicate our thoughts and overcomplicate reality. When we allow ourselves the opportunity to not try to overthink what's going on around us, things become a lot easier. Whether we're intelligent or not, a simple solution is usually the best. You know, one that's steeped in reality. And I think that it's a very common among addicts to overthink what's going on and try to overanalyze and outthink what's the world around them because there's no control. And that's a terrifying thing. The fact that we have no control over other people, events outside of ourselves. And, you know, I, I felt that a lot as I was reading the other questions that this, this individual was talking about. It feels very much that this individual is terrified that they have no control and they feel very put upon and it's, it's very much the world and society has put them in this position and they have no escape. And so for me, when I, I encounter that in recovery, 
Um, my biggest suggestion is to just accept the fact that the only thing that I have control over is myself. And the world is going to do things that I'm not going to be happy with. Individuals are going to do things that I'm not going to be happy with. But I have a choice about whether or not I stay miserable or if I transcend that and come to some acceptance about it and find within that the best possible life that I can have. You know, if 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 a huge alien invasion were to happen today and they were to enslave the human race, that is terrifying because I have no control over it. That's the root of that terror there. It's not that it's scary that they're here. It's that I have no control. And so what are my choices when that happens? How do I respond to that in a way that can keep my sanity intact? And I think that that is, it's, it's a huge struggle for a lot of people. It's a huge struggle for me sometimes to be able to come to a place where I can accept what's going on, accept reality for what it is, and find solutions inside of that that don't put me in conflict with people. We've come to part three of the Stay Free Forever podcast in which each of us shares a quote or a passage that we find compelling or interesting, and we talk about it a little bit. Who would you like to go first? You go ahead first. I've been talking. <laughs> okay. Mine is from a, a Bob Dylan song that I like called, It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding. And the line goes, and when we meet again and introduce as friends, Please do not let on that you knew me when I was hungry and it was your world. I think that that speaks a lot to embracing people as they are today and not how they were. Allowing humans to be human, to make mistakes, to have been in positions that were degrading, demoralizing, and to allow them to become something, to embrace humans as they, they move forward. Someone said we live many lifetimes in one lifetime. And when you recognize that and honor it, as you're suggesting, I think we're all better off. Yes. Well done. What have you got? This is from a, a book that I've been reading. It says, and just as it only takes a moment to die, it only takes a moment to live. You just close your eyes and let every futile fear slip away. And then in this new state, Free from fear, you ask yourself, who am I? If I could live without doubt, what would I do? If I could be kind without the fear of being fucked over? If I could love without fear of being hurt? If I could taste the sweetness of today without thinking of how I will miss that taste tomorrow? If I could not fear the passing of time and the people it will steal? Yes, what would I do? Who would I care for? What battle would I fight? Which paths would I step down? What joys would I allow myself? What internal mysteries would I solve? How, in short, would I live? These are great questions. People really do hold themselves back, don't they? Yes. I think that that idea, that, that fear, I mean, that for me, fear is what ultimately leads to a majority of decision-making, whether that's positive or negative. And I think that when we embrace the fact that fear is a part of being human, fear is a part of the human existence, then we can find our way through that into bigger, more beautiful things. And I think that when we make choices that are, are based 
in counterbalancing that fear, right? Accepting that it exists and then making choices to counterbalance it, not try and push it away, not try and make it something that to be ashamed of or to, to fight against, but to counterbalance it. We ourselves find ourselves in a more balanced life and a life that is worth living in harmony with, with ourselves and with the people around us and with the world around us. What's a counterbalance that you've experienced in the face of fear? Sometimes it's simply blind faith. I don't have the answer. I don't know what's going to happen here, but I'm going to take that step, even though I, I'm afraid. And maybe I've never done it before. Maybe I've never tried it before. Someone somewhere suggested it. Someone said, this might help you, Austin. Maybe you should try doing this. And so I take that blind step. I try not to overthink it. I try not to reason with it. And sometimes it is as simple as that, just taking that step forward. Because we're never going to, I found that I'm never going to get anywhere if I don't walk through it. Given how far you've come and the harrowing journey you describe, what's your life like these days? Today, my life is much more healthy. Really, the changes started when I was released from the halfway house and found a program of recovery. When I started engaging in a spiritual journey to start to learn how to live, you know, with grace and with integrity and, and with dignity. When I was in active addiction, obviously, you know, I, I was living in a tent. I was homeless. And today, as a part of this process, I've become more of a productive member of society. You know, I maintain a full-time job in a professional career. I pay my bills on time. And I live in a way today where my environment is healthy. I constantly talk about self-care not meaning we lay down in bed and mm -hmm. sleep all day, but self-care is action. And so part of self-care for me means that the environment that I'm in, I, I keep it clean. And I changed my environment to reflect what's happening inside of me. So instead of living in filth where it keeps me feeling less than, I allow my environment to be something that helps me find serenity. I lost my driver's license. I got a DUI back in 2011. And I just recently, maybe within the past two years, got my driver's license back. You know, that's just kind of another amends that I've made to society. But what I found is that for me, everything that I need is within. And everything that I need is within walking distance. I'm content with getting an Uber when I need one. And I have the capability today to pay for that. You know, a vehicle is a responsibility and, and like a maintenance thing that I just don't need in my life right now. You know, I don't have this like desire to escape in a vehicle. I don't know. You know, I, I hear a lot of, of individuals and they talk about how all of these like external things are keeping them from doing X, Y, or Z. And it's really become important for me to overcome that and find a solution, right? And so I don't have a vehicle. So what's my solution? Am I allowing the fact that the bus schedule is very limited to keep me from maintaining employment? Am I allowing that to keep me limited? Or am I finding a solution that's more steeped in alignment with the goodwill? What am I doing? How am I approaching my situation? And what is important to me? Is it important to be self-obsessed and, and sit down and, and feel defeated? Or is it important for me to look for ways to empower myself with what I actually have. What question or topic haven't we discussed that you think is important? 
I think that it's really incredibly important to know that I can be given all of the suggestions in the world. As an individual, I can be told, if you do this, your life will become easier. I can be told these things all day long by people who have experience. But if I do not make the choice to take those suggestions, make tiny adjustments with them so that I ensure that my life is working with those suggestions, then I won't receive the benefits that are being suggested to me. And sometimes I'm not always successful. I've talked a lot about hope and a lot about ways in which my life has changed. And I don't want it to be misunderstood that I, I live in this, this world of like constant spiritual perfection. You know, I still make mistakes. I'm still human. I still don't always take those suggestions. But I think the important thing is that I'm honest about those things, that I maintain open communication with the individuals who are in place to help empower me to live the best life possible. So people like my therapist, my sponsor, my probation officer, my employer, it's important for me to make sure that I'm open and honest about the things that I'm struggling with so that I can get the help that I need before it becomes a problem. Speaking of the help that you need, what are the top three or the top five recommendations you would have for people who are searching for specific ways they can get help? My life and my foundation is recovery. And there are many, many different forms of recovery available out there. There are agencies, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Codependency Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous. There's suicide prevention groups. Uh, well, variety is an option. They, they focus on more of like the Native American ideals of spirituality. There are groups that are focused around all kinds of different addictions, and they're available. If an individual is from a small town and they don't have that physical like brick and mortar meeting that they can go to, the internet is a magical place. It's a magical place full of all the support and the tools that we need to help ourselves become greater people. It is incredibly important. And what I found in my experience with working with other, other addicts is that mental health is so intrinsically intertwined with addiction and with criminal behavior. When I allowed myself the ability to get open-minded to receiving professional help from someone who went to school for that, you know, that that's their career, my life started to change. You know, when I allowed myself the ability to say, you know what, I do need the help. I need the help. And there are people out there who can help me. So I would suggest that. I would definitely suggest partnering with probation and not feeling as though I'm being put upon has really helped me to have a healthier relationship with that entity. Instead of looking at it as, oh, they're trying to keep me from living my life or doing what I want to do, right? Uh, obviously, my choices have led me to a position of needing to be supervised, right? Like that's that's fairly obvious. When I allow myself to partner with that, when I allow myself to surrender to the fact that this is not permanent in my life, it's really helpful for me. I think that being able to find as an individual a place where you can spiritually grow, whatever arena that looks like, right? Spirituality comes in many forms. There are many different options. And I think that addicts have, a lot of addicts have a really, really difficult relationship with God. And they have a really, really difficult relationship with the idea of religion equals spirituality. 
And so being able to get creative with that and explore alternative or, or whatever, whatever method that looks like for the individual and finding a relationship with that works with the individual, that's been crucial for me. Understanding that there is a power that's greater than myself that can help restore me to sanity has been incredibly crucial. And that doesn't look like religion in my life. I'm a fairly secular person, but I've been able to learn and to grow from people who are religious. And that has only helped me on my journey. If you were to be asked where you saw yourself in five or 10 years, do you have any thoughts on that? Five to 10 years from now, I have hope that I will still be engaged in my recovery. I have hope that I will continue to be learning and continue to be flexible. Perhaps I will have accomplished some material things in my life. But I have no idea what those look like today. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the idea that I don't feel like I need to have a mortgage in 10 years from now, but I can work towards being a person who's in alignment with the world around me. And perhaps that will be a benefit that occurs and I can embrace it as it comes. When I focus more on the things that I'm doing today and how those things will benefit me in the future, my life tends to become less focused on not being happy with what I'm getting in the moment because I don't have what I want in the future now. That's a great way to close. Thank you, Cliff. Thank you, Austin. That's been the Stay Free Forever podcast, episode eight. Thank you for listening. The Stay Free Forever podcast is recorded and produced by Clifford Fuel, owner of Stay Free Forever LLC, a Colorado and Wyoming company. Stay Free Forever provides adult and youth life skills courses via both e-learning and mailed workbooks, plus Zoom classes for any age group. Our theme music was composed and performed by James Benjamin Fuel. Editing and technical assistance are provided by Mary Tulin. My name is Molly Moore. For more information, go to stayfreeforever.com or email Clifford at stayfreeforever.com.